Okay, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our panel on, self, on censorship and self-censorship in Russia. Uh, my name is Will Pomerantz. I'm deputy director here at the Kennan Institute. And before I turn the program over to uh, Sergei Parhomenko, our Kennan Institute senior advisor, I just have a few brief announcements. Uh, today's program, as well as detailed information about the speakers, can be found mm -hmm. in the program available outside. Uh, if you did not get one of these uh, programs, then our staff can circulate them here. In addition, uh, the program will be conducted in both English and in Russian. And therefore, if you need uh, translation, uh, uh, headsets are available as well. Uh, finally, I just wanted to give you some, announce give some announcements about some upcoming events this week. Uh, it's a very busy week here. Uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, February 19th at 2 p.m., we will have a talk by Tatiana Vagromenko, who is going to be speaking on the K KGB photography and films, The Image of the Enemy. And then on Thursday, February 20th at 4 o'clock, we will have a speak, uh, talk by Gulberna Oxkan, who is going to be speaking on China's business in Central Asia, power and anxiety. So a busy week here at the Kennan Institute. And with that, I will turn it over to Sergei. Sergei, the well, floor is yours. Thank you, dear Will. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. I have some closest friends here <laughs> on the on this table. I'm I'm very happy on this, and um, we will try to start with uh, some brief speeches, and uh, then I will ask you for your questions and your comments for this these declarations. So let's try to start with Konstantin Eger. Yes. Kostya, you probably have the longest and uh, most diverse journalistic biography uh, of all the people at this table. Uh, you worked for BBC Russian Service for many years, yes, and uh, then now for Deutsche Welle. And before it was Izvestia, during the greatest period, the period of power, power and glory of Izvestia, uh, uh, in 1919s, and um, between it was Commerçant, uh, uh, and uh, daily <coughs> columns on Commerçant from radio. I remember very well you chronics. It was a part of my daily my routine, daily, daily ritual. <laughs> yes, just as brushing my teeth. So. Uh, Probably you experience many different kinds of censorship mm -hmm. in your life, and you must have learned to work close with censorship <laughs> and to resist it. Uh, tell us uh, what this experience has really got to you, and uh, was censorship uh, able to kill Russian journalism after so many years of fighting, and uh, how effective <coughs> censorship in Russia yesterday mm -hmm. and today? And to me personally, the, maybe the most important thing, what is the role of self-censorship in this uh, battle? Yeah. Thank you, Sergey, and thanks um, to the Kennan Center for organizing this event. Um, I'd like to start with actually a story from my own life, uh, which dates back to the first days when I became journalist, and that was 1990. October 1990, uh, just a couple of months after 
President Gorbachev signed the first and miraculously still uh, alive law on, on freedom of the media. Um, I just discharged from the army and was looking for, for a job. And I, I thought that it would be interesting to go into journalism because that was literally the first weeks of, of, of uh, Russian-dependent journalism. And uh, essentially what I did, I, I just walked into the newspaper offices of uh, the now defunct uh, daily, at that time it was actually weekly, which is called Kuranti, the bell clock tower uh, on, 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 the, on the Kremlin. Um, that's how the name is translated. And um, asked people there, what do I need to do to work as a journalist? And they said, well, you go and ask the editor-in-chief. The editor-in-chief, God bless him, is still alive received me in his very small cubicle and the newspaper as i said existed for only four months of uh, four weeks or six weeks something like that um i sat down in front of him and um uh, he said so young man what sort of what are your plans and um i said well i wanted to try and become a journalist now that it's possible in 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 the soviet union it was the soviet union so then what to what what, the, what are the skills that you possess and I said, well, essentially, I speak three languages. Which ones? Uh, English, French, and Arabic. Okay. What else do you know? I said, frankly speaking, a historian by my second education, which means absolutely nothing. <laughs> and he suddenly jumps on his chair and says, that is exactly what we need. <laughs> Why I'm telling the story? It's because in this late perestroika, early Yeltsin days, uh, journalism was very much... Uh, fed and developed by people who had nothing to do with Soviet journalism as such. And the whole idea of those people that created Kurante, Nizavisima Gazette, and the rest of it was that uh, people who experienced Soviet um, type of journalism um, shouldn't be working journalism, actually, because these are propagandists and not journalists. And uh, I think that although... Although the 1990s were not, um, I would say it wasn't a kind of First Amendment paradise, um, but of course it was a time when journalism was developing fast and um, where, um, where the idea that media freedom is important as such was fairly well received by the society and, by the way, by the political class. Um, I still do uh, certain projects for the European Union in Russia, um, which is educational projects for students. They're not about journalism. But when they Google me, um, they ask me when we sit down for tea or something slightly stronger after, um, they start asking questions about you know, how, how, how life was in the 1990s. What happened? Is it true that there was freedom of the media in Russia. I say, well, it wasn't an ideal situation, but of course much better than today. And they usually give them an example that in 1995, during the first war in Chechnya, um, you could watch uh, Channel uh, Kanal Rasiya, which is now, still is, the main um, state channel, and you'd find people as diverse as Gennady Zuganov and, um, and um, Sergei Kovalev criticizing uh, the Kremlin, Boris Yeltsin, live on TV without any repercussions. That's not possible today in Russia. 
Um, unfortunately, I think that these glory days, quote unquote, are gone and they are not gone. From, it, it, it's not accidentally that they went. It's not only Putin that is to blame for that. But it's societal developments which called for a certain element of uniformity and that definitely coincides with the makeover that um, Putin, uh, Putin's regime uh, inflicted on the Russian mind. And uh, the current level of censorship uh, grew out of the society gradually uh, deciding that it doesn't want to know, or at least significant parts of society, not all society. Um, I think that before I come to specific issues of censorship, I'd like to give another example, or rather share a thought. I think that what was underestimated in the 1990s when we had all these people criticizing Boris Yeltsin live on television, um, what we missed is that um, Russia goes and was going, still goes, and will go when I die through three simultaneous transitions. It's a transition from... Um, state-owned, uh, basically state economy to market economy, from totalitarian slash authoritarian state to democracy, and from an empire to a nation state. It's not my thought. It's actually Jeffrey Hosking, professor at Birkbeck College, who formulated it first. And this very, very intense three-prone transition is complicated by the fact that uh, Russians did not, in, it's not like Poland, they were not occupied the Soviet reality was imposed on Russians by Russians for 75 years. So this desire to go back to the safe certainties of the previous age is very strong. And that is what, to my mind, Putin very, very cleverly used. Um, today, people are saying, well, you know, was it, was it better when you had three oligarchs plus one, well, basically the Kremlin, owning four main TV channels in Russia. Channel One, Canal Russia, NTV, and TVC, uh, Lushko. Uh, um, I say, yeah. Yes, we understand that every single one of them had a certain job to perform and certain editorial conditions that were very strict. But you had four opinions on television, four different. Now, there is no difference. Uh, it, it's just only the, the picture that changes and, well, the weather forecast problem. Um, but I think that with regard to censorship, of course, the main, there are two main elements of it. And they are parts of a system that is very well built in Russia. There is direct censorship, uh, which is in basically operational, especially with regard to uh, state-owned and state-controlled media like Channel One or NTV. There you have um, a very strong connection between, say, the Kremlin and, 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 and uh, the editors, but let me put it like that. By now, now that 20 years have passed of Mr. Putin's rule, a lot of people don't need to be told what to say and how to present certain topics. They already know. It's not self-censorship, it's just living in censorship. And there are lots of uh, examples of investigative journalists uh, in Russia uh, publishing uh, 
sort of in-house emails about how we cover this and that and, and what kind of speakers do we invite and which we don't invite. So with the state media, it's quite clear. With the so-called private media, for example, like our former employer, Conversant, um, it is a bit more, um, a bit more complex and a bit better camouflaged. Um, it is the owner who is the main filter between the journalists and the authorities. And this owner um, also plays a game with you. Uh, he tells you, or you infer from what they say, is that, well, you see, you work for me. That means that you say, you broadcast, you write what I tell you. Because, in a sense, it's my media. What I want to do, I'm going to do with it. So the idea that there's ethos and there are certain things that um, that constitute public interest, if you wish, um, has dissipated over these 20 years. And um, this ownership, um, th this private ownership, in fact, is not that different from uh, the state ownership because of media, because, in fact, uh, there are no property rights in Russia, as Mr. Khodorkovsky learned to his chagrin, uh, in 2003-2013, so any property right is conditional. And any private owner of a media organization knows it. And although in theory it can be anything, in fact, uh, you have to toe the Kremlin eye. Um, it is also enforced by a very, very strong monitoring, which I think is done partially on auto uh, it's basically computer systems, for example, that monitor uh, broadcasts uh, and uh, filter uh, web publications. I think there are elements also of people actually reading things, especially reading is important for the masters of Russia. They, they actually are very much people from the 20th century. They prefer paper. Um, I'll give an example how it works. Uh, in 2011... I was deputy editor-in-chief of Commerçant FM, which is part of Commerçant Publishing House, and Russia's first proper all-news radio, 24-7 news radio. And uh, Commerçant ran uh, snippets from an interview by the then-president of Georgia, Mikhail Saakashvili, which was taken by one of the members of um, uh, Andrei Cherkasov's team uh, for the printed, uh, I forgot whether it was a newspaper or a magazine, but he shared the audio, which was recorded in high quality. And um, we decided to run snippets from this interview, bits and pieces. It's a very fast radio. And we started broadcasting exactly at the moment when we started our weekly editorial meeting at 6 p.m. So the interview goes out at 6.02, and we know it. By 6.24, the editor-in-chief gets a call from the director general of the uh, whole media company saying, X, Y, Z, what is this crazy Saakashvili saying on air? What? Oh, he says something about the Sochi Olympics, that they're going to be insecure, and you know who didn't like it. Which means the owner, which means the crowd, I don't know. Someone who is very important. Um, but, you know, it's already broadcast. Okay, just don't repeat it. Pull, pull off the bit with the Sochi Olympics. Well, let's 
let's let me be frank it was pulled pulled down this piece did not was not repeated in the repeats but can you imagine it's about 24 minutes or 27 maybe that took from this thing to be broadcast for the editor-in-chief to get the call whatever works there it's it's a very good communications channel really and uh you get these stories by 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 tons not even by the dozens in russia and in this respect whenever you hear that in most cases not in all cases but in most cases especially if it's an important media organization you say oh we're we're we're, we're privately owned yes you are privately owned that does not mean that your uh, editorial policy is independent uh the kremlin has i'm just coming to self-censorship and wrapping up uh the kremlin has um certain ways of also ensuring that uh, its views are heard even by those who belong to notionally critical or opposition media. Every time something important happens, I don't know, there's a pension reform in Russia as it was a year and a half ago, or I know Putin's first meeting with Trump, or the Kremlin sends planes to Syria, or the army to Syria, or something else. Um, all editors-in-chief of all media organizations are invited to the Kremlin for a chat, for a briefing, which is a normal practice in many, in many places uh, to have a background briefing on things. But I think when it comes to the, well, the more interesting thing, is not it's just not just the, some Kremlin rep telling you... Uh, well, our view of this is that, and our view of that is this. It actually is very frequently wrapped up by uh, recommendations for coverage. For example, as a follow-up, lists of experts are sent out to the media that are recommended to comment on this or that event uh, this or that decision by the government. Well, you, you may decide not to use them. But then you'll get this proverbial phone call, probably. And uh, as, uh, uh, unfortunately, colleagues from Commissant uh, uh, discovered, when I already left by that time, um, when you own notionally privately owned media organization, but you go a bit too deep in the direction that is not recommended, like, for example, digging up uh, the secret uh, ukaz, the secret decree by Putin decorating uh, one of his lieutenants with the highest Russian award for, for heroes, for s something which we don't know what it was, actually. Uh, Deputy Chief of Presidential Administration. Uh, decimation falls on you, and that is in spite of the fact that your circulation is boosted, your readership is boosted, if it's a radio or TV or whatever, your clickability is boosted and your audience goes up and your advertising is up. Um, and that creates a climate in which it happens once, it happens twice, it happens thrice, and then people realize where the red lines are. And here we come to self-censorship. Um, I had to self-censor when Putin divorced. And it was very clear to me, even before uh, 
anyone called me that the name of his alleged uh, girlfriend, who is a gymnast and Olympic champion, shouldn't be mentioned on the air. Then they knew it, and they said, well, you know, just let's go without it. In the end, lots of other demands were imposed on me, and I resigned. But I think the I can easily admit I have self-censored. Very frequently you feel that it's part of your job because you have to defend your team. If you don't do it, people are going to lose jobs. You're going to be evicted and someone worse will come. Of course, that's always an explanation. But in the end, it, of course, of course corrupts you. I mean, it, it, it depletes your ability to work normally. And uh, I think, I don't know yet, but I suppose it also inflicts certain, um, it perverts your thinking. And that stays with you even when you're gone. And I think that when it's repeated, for example, with the same media organization, when they have three editors-in-chief in a row changing in, let's say, five years, you know, people get the message. And the interesting thing also is that when, say, in Putin's first terms, and until the protests in Moscow in 2011-2012, um, it was very clear that there were some areas where you could basically forget about, I mean, where, where the Kremlin didn't tread, where, where they, they were not important, culture, something like that. After the protests in Moscow, after the realization in the Kremlin that things shouldn't be let um, unsupervised, even if it's book reviews or s film reviews, uh, censorship been intruded there. Look at, um, you know, I'm not going to name the name, but there are very serious deliberations by a publishing house which is supposed to publish a book on Molotov Ribbentrop Pact as to what the repercussions would be and understand these people. It wouldn't have been a problem 10 years ago. So to wrap up, because Sergei is making frantic gestures, um, I'd like to say, and of course I'm ready to answer questions, um, the last thought I want to share with you is that journalists are not living outside of the framework of society. And uh, I think that 20 years of Putin's rule had one big effect on the society as a whole, psychological effect. Russia is a country of cynics. And that works very well for the Kremlin because a cynic doesn't believe anything and basically that means the cynic is power powerless. And that I think touched to a large extent media organizations. And um, although there are some wonderful people still working in Russian journalism, when you remember that the media used to be called mass media, when, when we talk about returning to normality, that will take a very big um, effort to believe that there could be ethical standards and there could be journalistic independence in Russia. For now, my feeling is going to be a quite a long road. Thanks. Thanks, Kosti. It's great. I, uh, I see this strange smile on the lips of Konstantin Sonin and lots of notes. He always smiles. He's a yeah. sphinx. He thinks he's a sphinx. And lots of notes to respond to you. But uh, strangely, I will continue but by uh, Gleb Cherkasov, 
the case of Glebchuk, because it's a very recent one, a very fresh one, because uh, less than one year ago, one year ago, uh, Gleb was uh, chef, chief of um, political department of Commerçant, and uh, uh, he resigned with your entire department, demonstratively uh, uh, resigned from the Commerçant, as a protest against uh, unfair firing of your colleagues. It was because of the pressure of um, Ali Sheriff uh, what do you think about this uh, defense of the team? What do you think about uh, if it's the is it's the only way to resist censorship to leave the media and uh, to refuse to cooperate with the media and to sacrifice your professional interests? Uh, is it the just one single and unique way to 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 work is to, to doesn't work in, uh, uh, on the condition of uh, censorship. Hello, thank you very much for inviting me to speak today after such a brilliant speech by Konstantin Egert. It's hard for me to think of something new to say, but I am going to try nonetheless. First of all, I'd like to say that um, there is a certain threshold up to which you can keep on working and um, continue to defend your position, but then there is a certain threshold after which it becomes meaningless. But that is up to you to decide where that threshold is. And... Um, there are no formal definitions uh, where that line is. And my personal position was that myself and my colleagues, who I was managing and who, I, who we, we ourselves made that decision, based on some general principles of, um, you know, how we cover news, who's going to be our newsmakers, and how we are protecting our sources. And um, especially we've felt the most resistance on those last two aspects, because Konstantin, of course, was very correct when he said that there's political pressure, there's also shareholder pressure, and um, also another difficulty that's been evolving over a period of time. For example, if you take Commerçant of 2006 and the same uh, paper of in May 2019, because uh, after that I wasn't working there. Uh, but if you will see that in May 2007, uh, 24 uh, pages of advertisement for banks, for construction, any type of advertisement, 
advertisement that you would want. It was a very thick, colorful paper. And, um, and, and it were pages and pages of advertisement. And we also had two magazines that did not run any ads. Uh, so, but if we now look at 2019 and we look at the advertisement, we'll see that uh, there is half as much of uh, advertisements. And it is a newspaper now that doesn't have a lot of advertisement. And you know that the less advertisement you have, the less you dependent on external circumstances. And so it's very difficult to toe the line and difficult to defend your position under these circumstances. And it was actually very simple for us. After two of my colleagues were fired without any basis, um, after they published a rather ordinary article. And if you look at this article, you don't even understand why it caused such a reaction. It was not an attempt to undermine the government in any way. Uh, I don't know how anybody would even think that that article about the Speaker of the Federation Council would be considered undermining the government. But I have no longer, I felt that I no longer have any moral right to work in that paper, and I left. And uh, with me, several of our colleagues also left, and so I don't know how things are run there now. I know that they have a new um, people, and, and I don't really know them, and I don't really follow what they're doing there. But I would like to say that now we are seeing a very amusing situation, I would say, that could be considered a remake of what Eggert was talking about. 1990, a remake of 1990, when you came to a brand new newspaper and asked for a job. You know, at that time we had Pravda, Izvestia, the titans of Russian uh, Soviet journalism. We had Soviet uh, journalism titans along with small little newspapers um, that looked a lot weaker, a lot smaller a lot less stable, but nonetheless, you know, some of them died off, and but some of them played a very important role in the 90s, and Commerçant was one of them. It just held on, hold on, held on to the market for 30 years, and now we are living at a time of technological revolution in uh, the media. And it is much easier now to create your own um, media than it was five, ten years ago. And so it's really incomparable what technological advances we have now with those that we had in the 90s. And so if you want to create some kind of product, all of us... Uh, all of us can have the tools. It may not necessarily be um, professional, but we have the technological basis to just pull out a phone and be newsmakers. For a year, and maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, nobody um, 
makes uh, like reporting on their phone. Dolce Veli does. Dolce Veli does from beginning to end, full-scale reporting. Well, maybe what I mean is that um, over the past year and a half, like mushrooms after a rain, we see small media projects that are being done by young people, very different young people. These media projects are about various news and various themes and cover different subjects. Uh, but the pioneers of this work, Elizaveta Yesitinska, um, Media Zona, Media Zone, the process is evolving, and that's my, I personally call this, um, maybe somebody else can think of a more exact definition, but I call it Media 3.0. It's uh, usually a small partnership of people who are not connected with the official media market, who produce a product um, satisfying their own professional ambitions. Usually these projects are not very long-lasting. But if we remember the, the 90s, many of them also died off very quickly. But these new media startups and projects are acquiring experience in cooperation in producing media content. And what makes that particularly special and different now? Um, uh, they are doing what they are interested in themselves, what their readers and watchers are interested in. Not necessarily the most classic things. Um, I mean, for the past 10 years um, that I worked for, uh, sort of classic media giants, but when you are a media manager, First of all, you have to think about your responsibility before the people that work for you, that they do not get punished for what they do. Your second task is to live the day without major cataclysms, because every day you're expecting that phone call, and it is very nerve-wracking. And then your third priority is to come up with some um, story that will receive a lot of clicks, very becomes very popular, but would have no repercussions. Um, Usmanov saved a drowning puppy. That's for that's for the radio. We are we're, we were a serious publication, and your fourth priority is your reader, and you know. If you went out to the streets and asked people what they thought about, what they were interested in, that was our last priority. And that was really sad. That was That is very regrettable. But nonetheless, that order of priorities is burning you out very quickly. It's a burden, and it is very difficult to withstand that for a very long period of time. 
And when you are a manager, you remember how it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. You know how it was before then. And I'm also a historian, by the way. Um, and historians were, I guess, popular uh, as new recruits for the mass media. And um, I was one of them. But there was once an incident when one of uh, my colleagues wrote an official request to um, um, the government requesting commentary on a very innocent subject. So he sent this request to the agency, the agency that received this uh, request called the, called the, the management. They called the board of directors. I don't know who particular on the board of directors received the call. And then from the board of directors, um, that person called the chief editor, and 20 minutes later, chief editor came to me with my request, with my request that I sent, you know, I put my name so that I could receive the, the response quickly. He asked me, why are we writing about this? And I asked him, you know, how did you get this request? I mean, we're not trying to find some state secrets, a military secret. It would take such a long time to even explain what we wanted to find out. So I was trying to make sense out of it. The chief editor went to the correspondent, who was 23-year-old person at the time, and asked again, why are we writing about this? And so we had to explain to this correspondent that he needs to get that request approved before sending it on to the government agencies. And so... I feel actually good now, since I no longer am a journalist, that I don't need to convince people why certain news are worth covering and why certain things are important and why are we sending these requests. And why am I, I'm talking about this new media, Media 3.0, is our new chance. And they are, of course, much simpler, much more primitive. They do not comply with the journalistic standards because these people have not been trained properly. They, these are activists for whom um, their activism is more important than anything else. And we can see that um, those things that were just uh, on the sidelines just a few years ago is now taking over the market uh, and taking, going uh, up to the forefront. It, it is very personal. <laughs> it is very, very emotional things. Uh, now it's Konstantin Sonin who looks all this from abroad, who is uh, who's not a journalist, who is a teacher, professor, uh, uh, scholar, and uh, for you, the, all the journalism and all these uh, years of uh, columns in Vietnamese uh, is just a just a just a game, and maybe just a pleasure. Uh, how how you like all this uh, is for you 
the censorship is only self-censorship because we don't have we don't have a reduction uh, we don't have a newsroom uh, we we're just independent and uh, nobody nobody exerts this pressure of uh, of you no uh, okay, thank you, uh, Sergei, for starting uh, with the notion that I'm not a journalist. I'm yeah, not a journalist. I mean, I, I, sure. I, I'll come back to this. I actually, that's what I'm going to concentrate on. Uh, now, that, of course, I sort of feel frustration when I was invited for this, um, for this roundtable because uh, the people that are sitting here, they were giants when I was a student. So when I was a student, I knew all the three names as a journalist, because I, I, I read a lot when I was a kid and, uh, and a student, so I felt that only my academic credentials could compensate for this, not 500 columns for Vedemisty over 16 years, and 500 more columns for other, other media. I was a columnist for, for Aganyok, for the God's sake. Not <laughs> uh, so, uh, okay, uh, so what I wanted to talk about, I wanted to say a couple of a couple of words about theory of censorship, because my, I have academic papers um, on media freedom and censorship. Both we worked both with data and both with theory, but censorship is not that a simple a simple thing. So censorship um, is um, authoritarian leaders, authoritarian regimes. They trying to impose, impose censorship basically for two reasons. One reason is that theoretically censorship uh, censorship improves stability of the government. So basically the leader fears for his power. So he wants people to be not organized against the, against the regime. So censorship is needed for this purpose. And I think the, main, the second main reason why leaders uh, want censorship because they just do not want do not want bad things uh, said about them, right? So I think a lot of frustration at the top echelons uh, of the Russian government with the media freedom is not that they really fear a revolution or they really fear that they're going to be punished for their corruption, but they just find that yeah. it's extremely unpleasant to read about, uh, about their corruption, so they dislike it. But censorship also has costs, and the main cost is that people are misinformed. And when people are misinformed, then people uh, might not get the information from the alternative sources, but they still know that they are misinformed. So when, we, when I was a kid, when you were uh, adults in the Soviet, in the Soviet Union, uh, people, all people knew that what we get in the news is not true or truth, or at least it's kind of a truncated truth. And this actually, perhaps one of the explanations why the Soviet propaganda and the Soviet government spent much larger resources, uh, much, um, and had a much stronger capacity because of the repression capacity to impose propaganda uh, on Soviet citizens, that's why it was so ineffective in the late 80s because people just didn't believe anything that they would say. So this is an actual cost of censorship. That's why they uh, cannot actually close all the, all the print media. They cannot like, stop uh, information flows because there is uh, a, cost, a cost to this. But I wanted to talk about um, uh, some, other, uh, some other things about current, 
uh, current censorship. And I will start with the, uh, with the print media and then say a couple of words about uh, television. So one thing is that uh, people in academia, and not only people in academia, but every commentator who discusses uh, structurally the censorship in the Putin's regime tends to so sort of over-rationalize it. So like it's basically they imagine a much smarter and much a kind of more sophisticated force than there is there. Like most of episodes of the censorship, of the post-publication censorship that I've witnessed was basically replacing good journalists with bad journalists. It was not like replacing a good journalist with the uh, journalists who would be, or editors who would be as sophisticated but have a kind of different ideological agenda. So it was not like replacing Rachel, Rachel Meadow with Tucker Carlson. It was just to have a media with a strong, uh, strong editor and then just remove the strong editor and appoint nobody or just a person with a much lower uh, personal capacity. And this is basically the main act of censor censorship. So like censorship, uh, I would say it's censorship by, medioc by mediocrity or something, something like this. So I think it, in the print media this happened ma many times. So like, look at the recent examples, what happened in Lenta, what happened in Erbaka. The editorial teams were not replaced by ideologists. These were people who just less capable than the previous teams. They're actually good journalists, but those whom they replaced were excellent journalists. So this is a kind of uh, censorship by punishment, by punishing and censorship by um, regression, a regression to the mean. This is a little bit different with the uh, with the television because on television they do a kind of pre-publication censorship that we had in the Soviet Union in the print media, but we do not have in the uh, in the current Russia. But still, there are a lot of episodes in which the censorship goes through the appointment of people who are actually sort of incapable of producing um, breaking news, right? So a lot of talk show hosts, a lot of news anchors, they're just uh, like the human qu quality, the journalistic quality is just way lower than it was in 90s. And this is like the means of censorship. Uh, finally, I wanted to note one thing is that we think that there is a lot of censorship going on in Russia today. But there are areas in which uh, there is almost no censorship. One thing is like book publishing. For example, if you come to a bookstore and Russia has now a huge uh, density of bookstores, you wouldn't imagine how dense bookstores are in Moscow, then Boris Akunin, Akunin books will be everywhere, right? And he's certainly blacklist, blacklisted from the Russian TV, and he's set, sort of graylisted from uh, all kind of events. And the same, you could. There is a long list of authors who are blacklisted uh, on Russian TV, but they sell their books freely and enjoy like enjoy wide audience. So there is a kind of. Um, a whole a whole area that is not covered by censorship. Uh, okay, I'll probably stop here. Okay, I thank okay, you. Okay, I have I have never self censored myself. Oh, <laughs> lucky you. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. Frankly, when 
I, I spend most of the year in Chicago and I spend every year three months in Moscow. So when I write something political, so against the president, then I need to be in Moscow to write this. So I'm not uh, writing anti-Putin columns from, uh, from abroad. Is it sense of censorship? Uh, depends on the angle. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Kostya, uh, yeah. you have to, to, to answer this. Uh, Self-censorship and, uh, and columns. Uh, let me be, let me be, uh, maybe, let me take it a bit further. Um, I think that uh, there is no, one, when one tries to figure out the system, uh, what exactly these people in the Kremlin want to achieve. It is more complex than, let us say, the Soviet days. In the Soviet days, it was very clear. The uh, picture that was presented was very clear. Russia is the best, or the Soviet Union is the best place in the world. Um, everything else is... Uh, outside of Russia, there are good people. There are good Americans, good British people, good Germans, <coughs> whatever, uh, that would like to live like the Soviet people, but they are being prevented from doing this by uh, the, whatever, imperialist Zionists, you name it, and global capital. Um, the, the whole idea of Soviet ideology, as, as I remember it from the 70s and 80s, uh, was about um, how decent, how morally right Russia is. And uh, at the same time, how basically people should strive to something better that this Russia or rather this Soviet Union represents. Uh, the Soviet system as a beacon to the whole world. Now, I don't find it in the media today. I think that what, and that is something I tried to touch upon. I think that what the current uh, media setup tries to sell and I'll come back to censorship in a sec, is actually cynicism. The biggest export uh, of Russian media via Sputnik and RT is also cynicism. That's deliberate. Uh, cynicism and conspiracy theories. Like if you don't have water, uh, running water in the house, it is because Obama sent a group of Navy SEALs to blow up the water pumping station 2,000 kilometers away. Worse, it's because, you know, whatever, Freemasons and DuPont Circle decided that that's going to be in Novosibirsk. I think that that uh, weird mix of conspiracy theorizing and, and cynicism is very beneficial for the government and will have a long-lasting repercussion on Russian society, even, oh, rather, when Putin is gone. Because it creates a worldview in which, A, nothing depends on you, so you need a, some godhead to run the show for you. And secondly, you, 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 you don't want to do anything because of that. So why go and stage a rally to protest anything if the world is run by dark forces that are completely out of your control? Moreover, what is important is that um, 
the uh, I mean, when I worked for the BBC, just give you one example. I was always explaining, this is my good friend Daniela from Radio Liberty, who also worked with me then. And at that time, there's fairly vegetarian times of early Putin. We could still do tours of Russian universities. And I would explain how the BBC works and have a royal charge and have independence and this and that. Blah, blah, blah. Eventually, everywhere, in any place, from Yuzhno-Sahalinsk to Kaliningrad, someone will stand up in the audience and say, yes, yes, Mr. Eggert, we heard it, it's all very fine. Um, but tell us, how do you get instructions from the British government? And there, was, there is no force in the world, I, I don't possess it anyway, that could convince people that the BBC doesn't take instructions from the British government. The BBC has a lot of other problems, but it, it doesn't take instructions from the British government, no matter what this government is. And I think that this idea that there is no democracy, it's all a sham, um, it's, uh, you see, uh, anywhere else, I mean, all this talk about human rights and media freedoms, it's all a way of exercising power. It's all a way of uh, sort of blind, blindsiding the society. In fact, everything is run by military-industrial complex, the capitalists, you know, whoever. The Rothschilds, that's very important. Uh, you recognize it, right? Um, this has a specific impact on the Russian society because Russian society is very insular. It's fairly poor outside of major cities, and Russian society doesn't travel. You know, Europeans and Russians poke fun at the U.S. usually. Oh, you know, they, they, they don't know where Paris is. Right. I think that the number of passports in Russia is probably, percentage-wise, a third smaller than in, uh, in, in, in the U.S. That means, and I'm finishing, that means that when the Kremlin tells its henchmen in the media to say whatever they want about NATO, about Obama, Donald Trump, uh, Emmanuel Macron, global economy, people take it at face value because they have absolutely no reference point. They've never been abroad. Some, a lot of them have never been to Moscow, St. Petersburg, to compare and say, oh, well, hold on a sec, it's not right. And this is what I think constitutes the most effective, up till now, the most effective tool of propaganda which actually censors not your views, it censors your mind. Maybe just a few words about Russian, uh, Russian uh, book, uh, book editors, because it's a, that, that's true, it's a very interesting case uh, where half uh, for sure, less censorship in uh, in uh, book editing, but we have to know that the volume of Russian book market uh, was this as big as the Polish one in uh, 2015, and now Russian bo book mar market try to be as big as the Belgian one. So Russia, as a as a book country, is something between Poland and Belgium, except just one thing: just um, school books. The print runs of oh, yeah, well. school books is huge; that's evident. So uh, normal print run 
for Russian books is uh, between 2,000 and 5,000 5, 5, uh, 5, copies. And one more thing, the most important sensor on the, for a Russian book uh, editor, it's not a state sensor, but it's a, a book uh, commercial. But uh, it's, it's a libraire. Uh, the 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 uh, the book the bookstore because we have lot of of case when uh, Russian book was edited but not sold but refused by 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 the by, by, the, by the current yeah. yeah by by the book change uh, uh, by the book commerce sure I already know more about the book business than <laughs> I ever w- wanted to because my son is a professional writer um, who just published his first book. But, um, but we will see. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He already inspiration. Spell- is, we'll inspiration is, is a strong point. <laughs> yes. No. He already <laughs> sold the first uh, the first print the first two thousand. So, um, okay. Now I wanted to say that those uh, authors who are actually blacklisted on TV and um, would not be invited to. A kind of a good round table in a state university. Yeah. They still publish um, publish their books, and then yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we have a half an hour for for questions, and uh, uh, for sure the first is uh, is uh, Karina Arlova. It's absolutely evident uh, in this in this auditorium. <laughs> No. Thanks. Please. Yeah. Thank yes. you. Okay. Thank you. Um, hi. Yeah. My name is Karina Lova. Uh, I'm um, a colleague of Sergei Parhomenka on Echo of Moscow. So uh, I have a short question for Konstantin Sonin. Why is that that uh, you have to be present in Moscow when you write anti-Putin uh, columns that they can, you know, arrest you or put on trial? I'm just kidding. But uh, honestly, I liked uh, two of your points that you said that um, the two like, s- several downsides of uh, censorship is that people. Um, stay uh, misinformed and that, you know, bad editors and bad journalists uh, replace the good ones, right? So do you, all of you think that uh, Vladimir Putin might have fallen victim of his own uh, bad practices because, like, whatever he reads, it's all censored, you know, by the people who try to be, uh, to please him? And is he really well-informed at all? Because, you know, and it's important because he makes decisions based on what he knows. So the question is what he really knows. Thank you. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. Th- thank, thank you. I, I, I mean, when I, I'm writing something uh, in a column, then it should be credible. And when you say something uh, brave from the safety of Chicago, this is not that credible. So typically... If I write something political, then I need to be in Moscow because I want the readers to um, uh, to find what I write credible. Uh, on the second thing, I think that President Putin lives very much in a sort of infor- informational bubble on many frontiers. So he's sort of a victim of the propaganda machine, especially with respect to uh, to foreign policy. But what we've learned, uh, I think, not only in Russia, but in the United States and elsewhere, that um, people who might be considered ill-informed from the standpoint of an observer, people who uh, have a kind of very conspiratorial worldview 
they could be highly functional and actually highly successful as politicians. So the fact that Putin's worldview might look a sort of very closed and not well informed about many things, certainly there is no short-term price for this. There might be a long-term price, but there is no short-term price for this, and President Putin is not the only example. Hi, hello. Uh, Andrzej Dombrowski, I work for the Polish Institute of International Affairs. Thank you for, for being here with us t this uh, afternoon. And my question is uh, about the mm, uh, censorship methods and instruments that the Kremlin has installed and is trying to install on the Internet. Um, I was wondering if you have an opinion on that, and uh, do you think that this might maybe go towards the, the China model? Or, um, or maybe it will be like a, a light version of the China model. And uh, how do you think this will influence um, the, the, the ongoing situation in, uh, in the Internet, independent um, blogosphere, uh, people, individuals publishing on their own behalf? Thank you. Grip, maybe it's for you. I am afraid, afraid to be seen as an optimist, but it's not possible for us to have the Chinese way in the full measure of it, because, um, because fighting, um, fighting uh, other points of view in the, on the Internet is such a profitable business, it's very uh, irrational would be to close it down. It's big money, and um, I believe that um, the counter-propaganda on the Internet is significant. You can't quite just shut it down. And um, I believe that some feedback that they need is actually coming from the Internet. Not all uh, rulers live in such a complete bulletproof bubble. They do need that information. And if you remember the story of Telegram, when a year and a half ago, the government announced that they're going to block the messenger Telegram, and they couldn't block anything. It was a gold mine for them. And I don't think the Chinese way is going to be Russia way. Um, the story of the sovereign runet that we've been hearing about lately is just some technical mechanisms that could be used when necessary. But it is also big money. It and then this process is maybe pleasant to uh, undertake, uh, but, but um, uh, doesn't add, uh, totally make sense with, to finish uh, it. With, uh, um, uh, with Gleb, uh, it all touches upon generally this, uh, always there's this question whether Russia will go the Chinese way, or whether Putin will be the new Dan Xiaoping. No, there are enough, not enough Chinese in Russia for that. It's a, it's a, dif it's a different mentality and different approach to politics. And I think that not only the propaganda machine is being fed by constant uh, sort of sometimes imitated uh, imitation fight with foreign enemies, but I also think that, uh, and that, by the way, goes also for, for example, things like travel. I think that one, there are two lessons Putin learned from the late 80s, early 90s from the Brezhnev days to Yeltsin days. And these two lessons are very simple. One is that 
inflation is bad. That's why his uh, financial gurus are all on this kind of uh, very, very conservative sort of fiscal uh, uh, side of, of analysis. And the second thing is that you have to have valves to let the steam out because the Soviet Union blew up because this pressure cooker was completely plumbed. And uh, leaving these pockets of kind of free thought is the way of opening these valves and letting the steam out, just like keeping all the um, uh, all Russian airports open. Putin does need all these, you know, smart guys that will go and uh, demonstrate in front of uh, in front of the crowd, and he wants them to be in Chile and Helsinki, no matter where. Um, and I think that uh, with the with with a face recognition, first of all, I don't think it will be effective in Russia. And second, I think this is something that they know will provoke a lot of backlash from people who can be important, and uh, especially from the city intellectuals. And you know, I, I think that they don't want to provoke. I don't, I don't believe in it too. Okay, thanks, uh, Daniela. Hello, uh, Voice of America, Daniela Galaprovich. <laughs> Very good to see you here, Paul. Uh, <clears throat> my question is how this um, censorship and self-censorship, actually two questions, uh, how this censorship and self-censorship works together with a overwhelming lie of Russian state TV which, is, which, can, which produced every day, every minute, and it was in enormous proportions from 2014, I mean, I mean, how do you think it works for the population, for the consumers of, of the news? Because from one side it's cynicism, from one side it's, it's people from their Soviet feeling, they know that uh, journalism don't tell everything, mm -hmm. and at the same time they have this wave of propaganda that comes from TV every, every hour. And second question, what about coexistence and profession? between people who are trying to be uncensored and who are trying to deliver information with those who works like beside them at the same press conferences, at the same media environment, but absolutely obey the rules and even more, they actually being running ahead of the train, publishing some, some blunt lie and, and then kind of, okay, we mistake, sorry, that's it. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, I, Something I, for I, score. I, I'm not sure I can uh, can answer the question about the coexistence. That's more of a journalistic question, but I I, I would not. I don't know. This is a contentious point, point but I would not um, overestimate the role of the Russian TV propaganda relative to what's in people's minds. So, like anti-Ukrainian feelings were, were there. They just sort of opened them uh, them up. Anti-American feelings were there. I am a great believer in that there, is, there are some things that are more, uh, more permanent, more constant than like institutions, democracy, dictatorships, like Masha Gesson has an excellent book, uh, The Future is History, which is basically tells the story of Russian families over the 40 years and demonstrates that some things like world attitudes, they are 
extremely constant over time. So like presidents come, go, Chernyanka, Gorbachev, Yeltsin, Putin, but some things stay basically the same. And I think propaganda over the last five years exploited these things um, very much. But it's, it's, it, it was not vice versa. It was this from people's mind to propaganda, not vice versa. I think, I'm, I'm sorry, but to, to answer this, I, I think if uh, Putin and uh, in general Russian authoritarian regime have a, just one serious problem now, it's uh, the decrease of, of, uh, of uh, Russian TV propaganda, of television uh, firstly, because uh, less and less people just, just see the TV, this the state controlled uh, chains, and uh, I think I think it's uh, it's a irreversible thing. I, th I think it's uh, will be continue like this, and uh, uh, Putin and uh, his uh, team uh, will have to exploit more and more the internet and not, not uh, to be uh, Sergei, I wanted to add that uh, what you say, it points out that, that maybe there will be an interesting experiment there because I, I would not be surprised if uh, the Putin's government uh, would want to increase the credibility of TV, like responding to this decline viewership. So they might experiment with uh, putting some opposition leaders back on TV because I think they are very much concerned about this falling TV viewership. Well, see, I think I think it's the uh, it's the question of of uh, communication between the, the true communication between the Kremlin and uh, the team of uh, major Russian channels, because it's not not controlled directly by Kremlin. I, I, I think this these things this idea have to come to to Konstantin Egert first. Uh, and maybe it's... Uh, maybe Konstantin Ernst? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was just thinking... At okay, some yeah. point, yeah. No, Konstantin yeah. Egert, but yeah, yeah, now yeah. it's yeah. Konstantin sure. Ernst. Yeah. Too much Konstantin <laughs> on this table. Uh -huh. <laughs> Konstantin, Konstantin <laughs> yes, Ernst is, is the head of the, yeah. the uh, CEO of the Channel One. Yeah. Sure, the, the Konstantin is the most important person in, in, Russian, in Russian press in general. So... Uh, Coexistence. Um, it's always a personal choice, Daniela. Uh, but I stopped considering these people colleagues. That's very simple. And uh, because after all, you may like Putin and what he does, maybe. But that does not mean you have to lie. That does not mean you have to bend things out of shape. That does not mean you have to work for organizations that engage in massive brainwashing. Personally, I look through these people when I see them somewhere, I don't know, at, an, you know, at a summit or at a conference or somewhere. I just look through them. And, uh, but that's, again, that's a personal decision. Um, and uh, and uh, uh, others may well think that there may be a way of... Uh, switching it or flipping it and saying okay yeah maybe you should engage with them and try to you know scrape the remains of humanity from them maybe but i'm not a psychologist and i'm fairly old so i, I don't want to do that 
but others may. I mean, I, I, human nature is redeemable. So I'm quite serious. Just here, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Hi, I'm from Ukrainian Embassy. My name is Taras Maskalenka. Excuse me? Uh, I'm from Ukrainian Embassy. My name is Taras Maskalenka. Um, well, I was a kind of wrestling with myself which language to choose while uh, vocaling my uh, question here. But um, I'll, I'll probably just stick to the English uh, to, uh, for everyone to understand and et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, coming back to my question. So... <laughs> um, We've all seen the uh, metamorphosis of uh, a lot of uh, pretty respectful Russian journalists like Kiselyov, who uh, sort of tried to suppress his disgust to Ukrainians, <laughs> as was pointing out before, when he used to work in Ukraine in Kiev, and he did a successful job. Uh, I personally was one of his fans. And uh, well, now we all know that he has basically become a synonym to Russian propaganda and to some Ukrainians basically a synonym to Putin himself while he's trying to, you know, throw in some variations of truth. Uh, Kisilov, who is... Dmitry. Uh, Dmitry. I'm sorry, Dmitry. Not Dmitry. Yes, of yep. course. And uh, well, my question is, will we see the uh, sort of metamor metamorphosis back when the situation might change in Russia? <laughs> because obviously, I mean, I know you're laughing because you understand no, no, that. No question, no question. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure. I'm, I, we cannot say about each individual personally because some people are <laughs> really crazy. But but I'm pretty sure that uh, when or if uh, there will be a significant regime change, there will be a lot of people who would radically change their position. And on TV, there will be a lot of... As usual, a yeah. lot of, <laughs> of course. Okay, yeah. Thank you. Nothing special in the case of Ukraine in this. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Josh, please. Yeah. yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Wendy Reiser. I went to the Columbia University School of Journalism, so I have some interest in this, and I'm a sociologist. Um, you know, there's a lot of concern in the United States about local newspapers, regional newspapers. They're dying, and we don't need to go into the reasons why. But I'm interested in how this plays out in Russia, which is a large country and it has cities of various sizes. What's the story about local newspapers? Are young people interested in writing for them? Are they a little bit exempt from this uh, onerous oversight, uh, even if it's after the fact? And I'm also interested in the allies of Russia do they just take the press releases and the articles knowing they're distorted and run them, or do they have a little bit of distance from what they're fed? Please define allies who are nice. allies. Well, I, 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 I could say that people who write in social media and in blogs outside of Moscow, they certainly have different, uh, they're, they're facing different kind of obstacles. So, like, uh, people outside of Moscow in provincial cities, they could easily be fined or even go to jail for what is in, uh, will be no problem in my Facebook or Sergei's Facebook or said on Echo Moskvy. So the conditions are certainly harsher. There are hundreds of people who are punished for just uh, saying something on their social media. This doesn't happen to the media, like big media figures. Uh, but this happens to people, uh, people all over Russia, all over Russia, outside of Moscow. 
I could. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah I, I, I have to answer this question as uh, one of coordinator of uh, Russian Red um, Collegia program. It's uh, maybe you 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 have heard about the big Russian independent award, uh, and uh, uh, I working here for for four years now. Uh, my answer is uh, about the 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 uh, paper newspapers uh, outside Moscow? The answer, the answer is no. It's uh, no, it's, that doesn't work now. It's uh, not interesting for, for young people or old people or everybody. We have some exemptions like, uh, for example, the great tiny newspaper in the town uh, of uh, uh, no uh, car, sure, uh, yeah, and uh, uh, and another one on Kudimkar. It's uh, absolutely not in the middle of nowhere. It's uh, in the end of nowhere, uh, and uh, so we have we have some some miracles in, in this in this market. But uh, the uh, internet media on the local uh, level uh, work and work very well. And we have lots of cases when we have very good journalists in very bad situation, in very bad region, or even in very bad, uh, bad media. Uh, because uh, Russian journalism is alive now because of, the, of people, because of persons, not because of, of uh, some newsrooms or some teams or some, uh, some editions. It's, uh, it became more and more absolutely a personal thing, a personal profession, a personal, uh, a personal work uh, because of uh, social media and in the, on the same time because of the possibility to, to, to work on the internet media on the local level. Thanks. The problem has to do with the fact that the wages in the regions, in the provinces, is, by, is, is a lot, a lot less, by several degrees less than in the major cities. And as soon as a journalist, whether he works in the, in the print or on, in the internet, as soon as he goes, um, you know, starts to work, he wants to move to a larger city because as soon as he gets a job in Moscow, no matter what job it is, his um, standard of living drastically improves. Some enthusiasts do continue to work in the provinces and do continue to herald the new journalism, but in the regions, we see a lot of we see people people leaving so this constant flow, this constant outflow means that there is not enough people to form a backbone for journalism in the regions. We have time for the last two questions. Karina. My name is Anastasia Karimova. I used to work for Commerçant for several years. And um, to cut a long story short, I also lost my job because of censorship. 
and uh, I feel certain responsibility for not speaking up about this topic at the time and for not trying to organize or mobilize my colleagues who, who also experienced all these issues. And I wonder what is your uh, thought on this matter? Do you feel that um, we as a journalist community have certain responsibility for not, um, not, uh, not being proactive and vocal and uh, basically tolerating certain aspects of censorship in our day-to-day -day work? And what would you recommend to the future generations of journalists and the bright rush of future to do to protect themselves and to protect the, their jobs from censorship? All right, I'll uh, speak about the future generations. Anastasia, hello again. When we have an opportunity to create something substantial, we must not repeat the mistakes of the past. There is a certain divide between business and news. And when that wall was built, you know, or just the foundation for the wall was being built. And, um, there are no rules, there are no laws, there are no formal foundation for such defense. And every time we put up this defense, it is um, always an example of some personal attempt to overcome the situation. I worked at Commerçant for 12 years. I haven't, I, I don't know if there is, if there is a certain, maybe I wasn't interested enough in that aspect of it. Um, and I admit to that. But what also I think would have been good to have is a foundation for financial independence, because the level of state uh, control and state government economy that we have, uh, we have now, you know, 60% is owned by the government. Everything else is largely affiliated. And so hopefully we'll have new media that will be truly financially independent, who will um, be surviving due to, you know, their readers paying. And maybe we will have some kind of institutionally, institutional guarantees for their work. Konstantin Sonin, do you think it's possible? Through market, through media market uh, inside the authoritarian state. Is it possible in principle? Okay, uh, I, I don't, I, I think it's possible. I, I think Russia has a lot of good journalists and it certainly does not have a, like, um, but what about the economic base of this? No, no, but what I'm saying that it doesn't have anything resembling the Soviet Union level of censorship and propaganda. It's, it's a much, um, much freer uh, whole free environment. So it exists somehow. I, I'm not sure that in any, uh, in any state-dominated economy, the state media should be that censored as they are in Russia. They should. Be, I think they are propaganda tools to much more extent than than is needed. So we, I think we could have a vibrant independent media plus a normal state media in Russia. Okay. Uh, next time. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> First. Um, Nastya, I think that uh, 
circling back to what I was saying, I think the I think journalism. First of all, we don't know whether journalism will be what we know it is to be today in 20 years. I yeah, think that true. things change at such a breakneck speed, you know, that uh, I can't even imagine. Anyone could be a media, a media organization. But second thing, that's, and that's very important. Media does not exist in a vacuum. And essentially, if the society figures out, the Russian society figures out, that it's right to know, is an important right for it. Then a lot of things will fall into place and a lot of owners will be uh, will be also under pressure from society. Not yet. Not yet. Massively not yet. Not yet. It's always the desire to know. Coming back to Versac to what the Ukrainian colleague was asking about Kiselev and so on. But look, if you want to find out what really goes on in Ukraine, it's not a very difficult thing to do in Russia today. But... It's the fact that people shatter their minds because it's easier to think that it's fascists all over the place and, and we live in a stable country. And I think that journalism will be, again, as it was in the 90s, early 90s, and in the days of Perestroika, journalism will be probably reborn and probably in different form when the society is reborn. I like very much this, this uh, story but that uh, the things of Russia, the, the idea of Russian society about freedom of press is like an avocado. So, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. Hit me, hit me, hit me, no, no, no. Too late. <laughs> the last question. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Kirill Belininov, uh, journalist. Uh, so, uh, I mean, my question is very simple. I just would like to go to the second topic of the panel about the self-censorship. Simply because censorship, being a Russian journalist for over 25 years, you know, that's nothing surprises me about the censorship, and it's very simple. But now I see and would like to ask you whether you see this trend again or not. Uh, the new generation of uh, journalists in Russia who are honestly support the government, who honestly support the Putin agenda, and they are uh, just not only in the government-sponsored uh, media, but they are like, just all over the place. Clip, uh, probably you have seen this in Kabersant as well. Uh, so what is self-censorship, to your opinion, right now? And is it possible to fight it? Is it possible to, is it a new trend or not? I'll say this. At the time when I was managing those young journalists, and I was working with them, I did not care at all whether he liked Putin, did not like Putin, whether he liked porridge or did not like porridge, what kind of porridge he liked. The journalist had to investigate and write on the subject that he is tasked to write on his beat, and he must be objective. 
must report objectively what he found out. And I never liked extreme emotionality. I work with people of different, different political views, but um, I never met a person that who was you know, 100% for Putin or 100% against, people would be usually a combination of things. They would support some things and not support others. It did not matter to me what the journalist's personal beliefs were. What was important to me is how good of a journalist he was and whether he was responsible and objective. I'll give you a different example. For several years, I um, participated in um, uh, in a competition for journalists at the Moscow State University. And so it was common to ask everybody, what are you reading? And one after the other, they said, we, write, we read Medusa. Uh, I would ask them, you know, what they read, and they read Medusa. And once I was a little nervous, and I asked them, what do you read? And he said, I read Medusa. I like it. Anatoly Golubovsky is, an is a famous person. And, you know, and I talked to this um, applicant let him go, and uh, another applicant comes in, and I, we ask him, what do you read? And he says, I don't like Medusa. And I said, so, so they all looked like they were all in cahoots with each other and they were all prepared to say the same thing. And many times we had voting and voted for, uh, you know, sort of had polls about who to vote for, who people were going to vote for, I, I, I but I never really based my opinion on people depending on what they, um, the who they voted for. Department of Economics. Uh, so I, for many years I taught an introductory class for undergraduate students and this class uh, involved a kind of um, a lot of a lot of writing because they didn't know anything in their first uh, in their first year so they were just writing essays and what I discovered it is that of course most of students of the high school of economics they are a kind of conservative right they're anti-american they're anti-liberal but they sort of fear to write this to me because they read my columns they know that I'm pro-American, very um, classic liberal, uh, almost libertarian, and it's a kind of clear that half of them, they just fear that if they write what they think about Marshall Plan, and they universally think that Marshall Plan was, um, trap. Uh, was a trap. Uh, it, it, it's amazing how much of the Soviet times propaganda they have yeah. when they come to the first, first year, but they somehow thought that for me, their political views is sort of important, although they, of course, not. I mean, I teach them economics. It's it's totally... I, I mean, I never judged people on their political views. And in the economics department there, or at the U Economics School, now at the University of Chicago, we have people with all kind of preferences. It's like a total heterogeneity. Yes, we have as many Trump um, 
Trump supporters in, in my department as uh, Democrat supporters. So I, 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 don't, I, I don't understand this question, but what, what I wanted to add as an answer to the question, that it's true that in Russia people somehow relate political views, they kind of, they see a deeper connection between like prof professional qualities and political views. They think that like, if I am liberal, then uh, if someone uh, interacts with me in a professional capacity, then I sort of um, use this person's political views against them. I think this is a part, a feature of the Russian life, and I've always attributed this to our Russian inexperience of living in a um, society with diverse political yeah, sure. political views and open political competition. Thank you very much. That's all. It's all our time. Thank you. Thank you.